Welcome to Discourse, a podcast that explores multiple perspectives to think deeply and connect honestly with each other. I'm Anne Song. And I'm Sarika Narainsing. On the agenda today, Anne and I will be analyzing Scott Russell Sanders' essay, The Men We Carry in Our Minds. Let's get started, Anne. Uh, Would you mind giving us a concise summary of Sanders' essay? Sure. Oh, the word concise is putting a lot of pressure on me. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, so that's okay. Um, so this was originally published in 1984 and published again in Sanders' book, Paradise of Bombs in 1987. And this is an essay that we work frequently with to introduce to our students this concept of privilege. So basically, in this essay, Sanders uses the rhetorical mode of classification to classify the different men that he grew up with and he has come to learn about. So according to Sanders, when he was growing up, he saw two different types of men. On the one hand, he saw the brute toiling animals. So uh, these are the men that he refers to to describe laborers, farmers, workers, miners, the welders, the carpenters, etc. These are men who were working their bodies to survive. And on the other hand, he also witnessed warriors. And so these are essentially soldiers. These are the men who he says we're waiting for wars to happen waiting to be transferred somewhere else but eventually they would either kill someone else or then or be killed themselves so when sanders grows a little bit older he then learns about another group of men that he refers to as the bosses and these are the men he says that gave orders around to both soldiers and laborers they are higher in class and in position these are the politicians the astronauts the generals the lawyers the doctors etc essentially he's referring to white collar men and so he classifies these three groups so we got the brute toiling animals the warriors and the bosses and this is essentially his way of responding to the woman that he later met in college who accused according to Sanders, accused him of male privilege. And essentially in this essay, he responds to the woman to say, you know what, not all men are the same and not all men enjoy quote unquote male privilege because the background that he comes from, which is the background where he was surrounded by what he calls the toilers, becoming a white collar scholar is something that he couldn't fathom when he was a child, right? So the power that a lot of his uh, female peers thought that men shared, uh, he's saying it's not actually true. So I hope that was a concise summary, Sarika. Why do you think this essay is so powerful? Because we come back to this piece every semester and we enjoy this piece. Tell me why you think Sanders is worth looking at. Absolutely. What I've always appreciated about Sanders' essay is the timelessness of it. Mm. You know, you had mentioned that it was published in 84 and then again in 87, and we're in 2017, and still students uh, can relate to some aspect of this essay, Mm -hmm. Um, and it allows us to talk about archetypes of men and what are the images of men in our own minds, which allows students to really relate and identify Uh, with Sanders's point and I think that his point is valid. Uh, What is so convincing and so effective about Sanders's essay is that he's not telling us that not all men are privileged but he's actually showing us that not all men are privileged Um, and he begins in paragraph one and then moves into paragraph two with really strong active verbs um, which brings to life Mm -hmm. the memories. Um, So for instance in paragraph two he describes men who, quote, labored with their bodies, uh, just scraping by. 
They swept floors, dug ditches, mined coal, or drove trucks. And so these really strong active verbs show the reader that these daily activities, these things that construct our society, are built on the backs of these men. Mm -hmm. It's these men who put into action our comfort and pleasure. Right. To, to continue what you were saying on that same paragraph, yeah, other active verbs we see, they are, they are tilling the gardens, they are fixing broken down cars, they are hammering the houses. Like you said, they are putting in the work. How did you feel about paragraph three? Because then he moves from actually um, the action of the men, their bodies, into almost sort of uh, segmenting the, the male body mm-hmm. um, and almost sort of like dismembering the memory of the male body uh, for us to feel his pain or the yeah. male pain. Yeah, paragraph three is particularly striking because of the language that he uses to describe the male body. So what he does is exactly what you mentioned. He breaks, he almost breaks and segments the body into different parts, body parts. And so he, he starts off here, uh, quote, the bodies of men I knew were twisted and maimed in ways visible and invisible, end quote. And now he's going to go through each body part. He starts with the nails and the hands, uh, the, the lost fingers, so what's even not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, their finicky backs, their guts, their ankles and knees, their eyes that were squinting, their skin, and their faces, which he compares to old work gloves. So he breaks their bo- the male body into different parts. And in so doing, uh, he very powerfully objectifies the male body. And in that objectification, he could, because he's dismantling the p- different parts, he is also dehumanizing the male body. Do you think that he's doing that to dehumanize them or to show something else, to show that society dehumanizes the male body? I think it's the latter. I I don't think he is dehumanizing them because this is what he thinks of them. I think he's trying to, going back to paragraph to what you mentioned about the work that these men are doing, I think what he's saying here, like, look, and he's showing us here, not just saying that it is the bodies of these men and they're breaking quite literally breaking their back to give back to society, to survive, to make a living for their family, uh, to become the breadwinners, which is the, the men he knew, right? the brute toiling animal is somebody who is toiling, literally toiling their back to provide for the family. And by objectifying and dehumanizing them, he's saying that in some sense, they have been denied humanity and, and dignity. Right. And I think what's so interesting about this is that typically we think about uh, the masculine male figure as the silent suffering type. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, Not one to express or vocalize or verbalize their pain. And that's exactly what Sanders is doing. He's giving voice to their pain. Yeah. He's not getting them to speak to their pain, but he's just showing it. Yeah. And in so doing, by by looking at their pain in such a detailed and descriptive way, he's also challenging the notion of the masculine body being all-powerful. Right. Because he's actually saying, no, it's not all-powerful. It wears us down. It tears us apart. It rips uh, our bones it's we are not all powerful and I think this is why his essay is so interesting because like you said earlier he's quite literally showing us through descriptive language what these bodies look like underneath the clothes and it's like he's showing us fallen apart which is interesting because 
one of his main goals in this essay is to show us that privilege and power does not simply stem from one's gender. Mm-hmm. It also comes from class. Mm-hmm. And he shows us that his father was able to negotiate his way and navigate into an upper class. Mm-hmm. From, from a rural background. Exactly. But still, even his body broke down at 65. Yeah, you're right. He mentions that in paragraph 6 when he says that, you know, his father finally moved into this third group of the third class which is the bosses the white collar men and he says quote but his body remembering the early years slogging work began to give out on him in his 50s and he quit on him entirely before he turned 65 end quote i appreciate that he showed us that you know men are toiling And they are the nuts and bolts of society Mm -hmm. that we ignore and perhaps disregard. And he's saying that's unjust, it's unfair. We need to be looking and appreciating this labor to show us that, you know, our comfort, our pleasure is is because of their broken backs. Mm -hmm. So what I found kind of troubling, though, is that he ignores the fact that a lot of these men are able to do their jobs and their work because they are relying on the backs of women. Yeah. So this is where his essay, although beautifully written, especially the first half, uh, through such descriptive and visual language, becomes really problematic, doesn't it? Because he forgets about uh, the hard work of women. He and, and actually, some may even argue that he trivializes the lives of women. Absolutely. He does take on a more patronizing and condescending tone in the second half of his essay. And his attitude is defensive. And I think that what he, where he goes wrong is that he does not address what his audience wants him to address. Um, he is quite literally speaking back to the women who he met in university in paragraph 7, who he says, uh, quote, And for the first time, I met women who told me that men were guilty of having kept all the joys and privileges of the earth for themselves. And so the purpose of his essay is obviously to speak back to and address that um, that accusation. Oh, yes, absolutely. Like at the end of his essay, uh, when he's reassuring these women that he is actually their ally, he says, if I had known then how to tell them so, would they have believed me? Would they now? So the very fact that he's asking that question at the very end, he's speaking directly to these women. Exactly. Who, who supposedly accused him of privilege. Right. We also don't know the accuracy of that, of that mm-hmm. claim. I think what goes wrong is, as a writer, he doesn't actually validate or recognize or acknowledge their grievances. He almost argues off the point, mm-hmm. and he mounts this sort of um, this descriptive defense to uh, defend his own positionality, his own, his own self. But he never actually addresses and shows that, yes, I understand where you're coming from. I understand your grievances. I understand your suffering and your misery. Mm-hmm. Instead, he almost, he almost tries to compare the misery. Yeah, which is a whole other issue there. For the audience members who did not read Sanders' piece, let's go back to the text. He does say in paragraph 8, he starts off, this is the important paragraph where he uh, talks about women and what we were saying earlier trivializes their experiences. He says here, quote, I was slow to understand the deep grievances of women, end quote. And so he goes on to say, look, I, just as a summary of this paragraph, he goes on to say like, look, women in my mind when I was young had a great life. 
mm-hmm. right? They were the ones reading about art and and listening to music and reading literature. They were the ones who were visiting libraries. They were the ones who were going to church events. They were the ones who were going to town to visit neighbors. And he says he even goes as far as to say that he actually envied them. Right, and I can understand. You know, I do appreciate that he's acknowledging his bias, and I understand that he is also acknowledging his shortcomings.、Mm-hmm. I think that that first sentence you read suggests that he overcomes his ignorance. Yeah, but he doesn't quite do that, does he? No, he doesn't.、Uh, he says here, just to give you an idea of where we think he fails to understand women. So I'll just read out a quotation here from paragraph eight. He says here, "Quote: I did not realize because such things were never spoken of how often women suffer from men's bullying. I did learn about the wretchedness of abandoned wives, single mothers, widows." But I also learned about the wretchedness of lone men. End quote. So this is the area in this paragraph where he says, "Look, I'm a male. I only know so much about what a female experience is like. As I got older, I did learn that women did not have it all. That it wasn't just about going to church and going to libraries and lottie dying in the home. That women had problems and women had、uh, burdens and." Oppressions that they had to deal with as well. But let's look at his language. Do you think, Sarika, that he does justice to the oppressions that women experience as a woman? No. I mean, I think that the word bullying is a very vague term. Absolutely. And that can range from emotional abuse to unrealistic expectations、mm-hmm. and pressure in the household or outside the household, which he does not address. To domestic violence and sexual violence against、mm-hmm. women, as well as the lack of control over their own bodies. Exactly, exactly. And I think the fact that he doesn't actually specify these types of abuses and violence against the female body goes to show that he doesn't really get it. No, and it's really interesting, right? Because he spends so much time looking at the male body and the pains of the male body. But when it comes to the female body, he just brushes over it by saying, "I understand that there are some、uh, that women experience some bullying. I get it." But he just breezes over, and 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 that's what I mean when I say he trivializes the female experience. And I don't blame him completely because he is honest about saying, "Look, I'm not female." But I do think, as a writer here, he has a responsibility to explore this topic more thoroughly. If he, as he says, really understands that women experience oppressions too, and that's the thing, he's not entirely honest about his ignorance and his shortcomings.、Mm-hmm. Right? He does say at the very beginning, "I was slow to understand." But that's in the past tense, suggesting that he now understands. Right. But this clearly、um, demonstrates he doesn't. And further, I found it so problematic that he looks at the quote wretchedness of women in relation to men.、Mm. It's always that they are an accessory of of men, and、sure. their suffering stems from the fact that they are they've been abandoned, or they're single mothers, or their husband died. Now they're widows. As if that's the only. That's the only destiny of a woman. To、yeah. be married and have children, and as well, those are the only issues that they had. Their only desires, only ambitions, and motivations in life were to get married and have children, which I think really oversimplifies、mm-hmm. females.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to even further that, he he goes on this paragraph to say, like, you know, I have tended a machine, I've tended a baby, and if I had to choose one, I still go with the baby. <laughs> It's almost his way of saying, like, at least women don't have to go to war. Uh, so they could be comforted with the fact that 
they have a pretty little baby to look at. Again, just such a flawed comparison. It is. It's a flawed comparison. It's a faulty comparison. Um, and therefore, it's a logical fallacy. And again, overseeing the fact that the right to choose for themselves, for, for a woman to choose what to do with her body and whether or not to have a child was not and continues to be a, a compromised right in so many ways to this very day that, you know, women don't have access to that. A lot of women don't have access to that choice. Yeah, and he forgets to see, mention that. And he doesn't see it. He doesn't see the lack of choice being a problem. And I'm glad that you've actually brought up those two words, choice and right, Mm -hmm. because that actually goes back to his paragraph seven, where in defense of his position, he does ask this rhetorical question, quote, what privileges, what joys, what had they stolen from their wives and daughters, the right to go five days a week, 12 months a year for 30 or 40 years to a steel mill or a coal mine, the right to drop bombs and die in war, the right to feel every leak in the floor, every gap in the fence, every cough in the engine as a wound they must End. What did you think about his use of the word right? Well, he's obviously using the word right ironically. Mm-hmm. He does not see it as a right or privilege or something to cherish in any way. He is saying, these are burdens that men have to deal with. I did not choose this life. Uh, he's saying, because I'm a male and because I've been, I was born into a rural class, I have to do these things and my fathers and their fathers had to do these things not by choice, not just not because I want to be enjoy these things, that there are burdens that we have to take on. So he's using it ironically. Which is interesting. And, you know, I can really, I can appreciate his point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what he's also asking the reader to do and these women, his audience, is to reassess and redefine what we mean by privilege. Mm-hmm. What does that really mean? And I almost don't know if he understands what it means. Yeah. Because I don't think that privilege means simply the right to choose Mm -hmm. but the access the opportunity to choose right dropping a bomb is a decision that is made but how many women have the access the opportunity to make that decision that's something he completely neglects to address right which then translates over to the next paragraph when he's talking about uh babies right He, again, completely does not see that that choice is not an option Mm -hmm. for a lot of women. You know, Sarika, I think Sanders, uh, his piece is really interesting because even though it was written in 1984, it's something that is, like we said earlier, still so relevant today. And what I mean by that is, It's basically in our culture, on Twitter, on Tumblr, and even in the classroom, whenever we discuss privilege, it's an uncomfortable topic for many people because oftentimes it is perceived or used, call people out, I guess, and for people to feel like it's an attack, you know, as if to say, you know, to say, oh, you are privileged in this way is to say then you are entitled as well as oblivious to these things. And so I don't blame his defensiveness, to be honest with you, because we still see it. We see it today whenever this conversation comes up. But uh, it's not to say, however, that we shouldn't be having this conversation. I think if Sanders approached this topic with less defensiveness and more humility, I think perhaps he would have been able to connect with the female audience in a more productive way. Exactly. And I think, yeah, just to sort of pick up on what you're saying, one of the main barriers to him 
achieving his goal, mm-hmm. his ability to achieve his goal, um, is that he, he doesn't validate or recognize what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like you're saying, like for me personally, when I'm in a conflict situation, I feel defensive. That's my first instinct. Um, but I know that logically, and you know, I've read a lot of articles about negotiating conflict, you have to listen. Mm-hmm. And you have to acknowledge what the other person is saying because they do have a valid point. If you've made them feel a certain type of way, mm-hmm. you have to recognize that and you have to address it. But, I mean, like you're saying, like I don't think he understands what his audience is really telling him. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in his last paragraph, paragraph 11, he does say, quote, The daughters of such men wanted to share in this power, this glory. So did I. They yearned for a say over their future, for jobs worthy of their abilities, for the right to live at peace, unmolested, whole, end quote. And it was at this point that I felt, yeah, he doesn't, we don't share the same definitions Mm -hmm. because the access to those opportunities and what it means to be unmolested and whole, Mm -hmm. I'm sure are, are very different things. From, from his perspective from his and perspective. from his female audience perspective. Right. Yeah, I think a couple things. That last part where he says, the quote that you just mentioned, you know, him saying, I want to also live in, quote, right to live at peace, unmolested and whole, end quote. It's problematic because he thinks, and what he's doing here essentially is he's comparing, I think you mentioned this earlier, his pain and his trauma as a male from a poor rural background with the trauma and pain of females in general. Mm-hmm. And again, we got to ask, like, is that really a productive conversation to have, to compare pain? That's uh, Like, yeah. where are we going to get with that conversation to say my pain is bigger than your pain or our pains are the same or not the same? I don't think it works here because, like you said earlier, he doesn't quite get female pain it's an unfair comparison and i i actually think it's really disrespectful to be comparing misery like that Mm -hmm. i almost feel like he's inching towards that you know we're all equal argument Mm -hmm. but but we're not all equal and that's not really the point i don't think that these women are looking for equality but rather equity which is to say yeah of course we should all have these human rights Mm -hmm. some of us have more access to those human rights Mm -hmm. yeah why don't we help each other address those inequities Mm -hmm. and i think the conversation of privilege is a framework in which we can look at the oppressed the non-oppressed the marginalized and non-marginalized as a systemic whole to see how do we all participate how do we benefit and what can we do to make a more equitable more kind and more more just society it's an opportunity for for us to have that conversation so when he pretty much invalidates his audience's um, suggestion here about or from his perspective accusation (laughs) when he invalidates what they have to say and then starts to compare pains and then to become a defensive mode i think i don't know it just kind of leaves a sour taste in your mouth i couldn't put it in better words a sour taste right because the women are saying that you some men a lot of men mm-hmm. have hogged all of the joys and privileges in, the, mm-hmm. in this world. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and quoting them. Um, and he's not saying, let's share it. Mm-hmm. Right. He's, he's not, not, he's not saying, saying that. let's share. And I think that's what the real issue he's is. He's more like, but what about me? 
Exactly. <laughs> Where's my peace? You said I. You said I had privilege. Right. Yeah. Where is it? Yeah. So again, I think it's a great teaching piece because it it introduces that concept of privilege and how we define privilege, but also the how talking about privilege is hard and absolutely. But defensiveness doesn't uh, move the conversation forward either. No. And calling someone out on their privilege may not be the best. productive either. Yeah. So what is a productive mode? Yeah, it's definitely not one of the best ways to go about it because clearly Sanders responded quite negatively to it right. and it didn't work for him. And how do we get back to, um, you know, we used to say, you know, for instance, quote, I had the privilege of working with Anne, mm-hmm. right? That humility, mm-hmm. that empathy. How can we get back to that? Thank you again for thinking so deeply with me and connecting honestly. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. We know that we've been kind of behind in our episodes uh, due to, uh, you know, marking, marking <laughs> uh, um, and prepare for conferences and whatnot. But we were going to try to get back on track and produce bi-weekly episodes to the best of our abilities. Yes. And... Mm-hmm find us on itunes yeah super exciting we are moving over to itunes so that means that you can save our podcast on your phones through the podcast app whichever podcast app that you use and listen to us on the go